Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we're so glad that you joined us today. Please remember to follow us wherever you happen to be listening, as well as to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and come find me on LinkedIn. There's a direct link right below the show. Also, Search us out on the web at dclocalleaders.com. There you'll find not only our past episodes with leaders in the area, but also our Monday mindsets and an opportunity to join our book club and newsletter, all designed to help us get 1% better every day. It's not a you thing. It's not a me thing. It's a we thing. Let's do it together. Today's episode is with Jennifer Ives, Senior Vice President of Three Pillar Global. She's also named Top 50 Women in SaaS and is a founding member of Chief, a private network built to drive more women into positions of power and keep them there. She talks about mentorship and what it means in her life, the mentors she's had and how she gets to help others. She's an extrovert, but still needs her own personal time to recover. And she tells us a little bit about the impact of losing her father at a young age and what that's done for her entire career and the lessons that she learned from him that still show up in her life today. I do want to mention that we recorded this episode live in the office of three Pillar Global. And for a brief moment, you can hear a hailstorm outside. Now, we were unable to get that out in post-production, so we just want to apologize for that. But during that time, we were talking about her morning routine and how much of an impact that makes on her. So you can still listen. You can still hear it. I just want to make sure that we let you guys know that we do know that it's a bit of a distraction, but we did everything we could to try to get that sound out. And it only lasts for a couple moments. And as always, we're continued to partner with NVTC to bring you Let's Talk Tech with NVTC. Our most recent episode with MITRE is out now. You can find it on all of the DC Local Leaders channels as well as NVTC.org or their Twitter at Nova Council. Check them out for more episodes coming up. You can sign up in advance at NVTC.org. And please remember to follow us wherever you happen to be listening. Check us out on the web, dclocalleaders.com, and come find me on LinkedIn. I really want to connect with you. And let's get into the episode. I'm really excited for this conversation, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm excited. We've been talking about this for a few months, and I'm excited to be part of part of the podcast and sharing thoughts with your community. Thank you. So Three Pillar Global, I think we know you software development company. You guys have what's... Well, now you have 1,900 employees because of the new acquisition. Exactly. Exactly. So we have acquired... We are incredibly fast growing, and we've acquired three companies in the last eight months. We have a global footprint in many different countries around the world. We call ourselves kind of 24 or 5. We do like to to take a, a break on the weekends, but um, oh. when we design custom software for, gosh, for clients such as Fortune and PBS, Zillow, The Telegraph, the list goes on and on, Forrester and many others, we like to say that we're 24 or 5. We can, we can be designing that software and helping those companies achieve their revenue growth goals through digital products 24 hours a day, five days a week, yeah. seven if they need it and if they're on a, a tight 
take delivery. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So, you know, Jennifer, you're you're a technical person. You started off as a technical person, I but did. now you found yourself in more a business development sales roles. From that very first conversation that we had when we talked about having you on the podcast, I could just tell that you were a student of mindset. You've learned some things along your way. You founded things like Chief yeah, founding member of Chief. Mm-hmm. And there was an alliance. What was that? Tandem NSI. What got you from, from there to here? It's a great question. I'm a huge believer in not putting blinders on. I, I talk about that a lot. If I had put blinders on, I would never have the career that I've had. So rewind. I was raised by uh, a lot of engineers in my family and a lot of teachers in my family. Some bankers as well, so we've got some finance, but a lot of engineers and a lot of teachers. My mom and dad were dedicated to making sure that my siblings and I, I have two sisters, uh, had a really strong math and science foundation as well as arts and humanities. And when we went to college, my dad and mom shared with us that we could be anything we want in the world and to please choose a STEM degree. I have a sister in medicine. I have a sister who's in data science. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do or what I wanted to become at 18, 19, 20. I changed my major many times. I had many different internships. And I happened upon a guest lecture. I went to George Mason University for undergrad. And it was the best decision of my life. It was one of those decisions where I thought I would be there a year. And then I got into what's called the PAGE program. I think it's called something else now, but it's an honors program. And it's a two-year program where freshman and sophomore year, you're together with a specific cohort and you're taught by full professors. And it's a really wonderful program that I got into. And I really found a path at George Mason that I, I didn't expect. And... It was one day, my junior year, when I think I was on my fourth major, because I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to be in life, and thinking about those STEM degrees and that my dad had, had mentioned to us <laughs> pretty strongly, and my mom too. And I, I happened upon a famous geospatial engineer who was giving a guest lecture, and I didn't know what geospatial engineering was. Now everyone knows what it is, because if you have Google Maps on your, on your phone, that is thanks to geospatial engineers who have coded it and done all sorts of work with the data and the spatial data and everything. So I attended that lecture and said, what is this all about? I, I, it's got the technology. It has spatial relationships. It has data. It has visualization of data. It has all of these things. And this was back in the, the early 90s when even my family of engineers and extended family of engineers said, oh, my goodness, a geospatial engineer, what is that? And are you going to be able to get a job? Will you be employable after you graduate? The wonderful thing, again, about George Mason University is that at the time, they were one of the few schools in the country who had a geospatial engineering program, mainly because of the super secret agencies in and around the D.C. area who hired in large numbers geospatial engineers. So I got my degree in geospatial engineering. I went to work for a very fast-growing technology company in the area. They've now been acquired four different times, and now they're completely... It's wonderful. It's a fantastic, exciting story. I was on the, the engineering team for a few years, and it was during that time that I had a the CEO of the company needed to talk to a client and he needed to take an engineer with him someone who could felt comfortable and excited about interacting with clients this was again i'm going to date myself this is the mid 90s this is before you had regular sales engineers or solutions architects or others that would be interfacing directly with clients and you know asking questions so i went to a meeting with him and the rest is history i never had thought before about the business side of the, the engineering of the technology world and i was able to for an hour 
ask deep questions, ask good questions, make sure that we were talking. I, I talk a lot in terms of pain. Were we talking about the right pain point? Did they have a pain that could be solutioned via Advil or via Tylenol? Because if we're trying to offer Advil and they really need a Tylenol, let's help them understand that. And let's get them to someone who can offer them Tylenol. If they need Advil, let's get right into that or Motrin. Let's get right into that and find out how we can solution for them. Did you have that narrative with you at that time or is that something that built over time? No, I, that built over time. Actually, Walt Mossberg, who used to write for the Wall Street Journal, he was very, very, very kind to me in my career. I was uh, nobody, just a little technologist without any credibility or anything. And Walt Mossberg is really wonderful at seeing talent and helping to cultivate that talent. And he started to invite me as part of Arlington Economic Development because I joined AED after graduate school. I brought that innovation, that technology and that business love and started to apply it to an entire community. I met Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher during that time and they started inviting me to an invitation only conference out in California that they used to host called All Things D or All Things Digital. It's now known as the Code Conference. But again, I was I was there with Steve Jobs and very big people with very big names. It was a very small conference. And again, Walt took some interest in me and my career and started to share with me that having a technology background and, a, and some business experience is really powerful in the world and also started to give me confidence in the conversations that I was having with people, unlike in the 10 years before. Right. Yeah. I mean, he he started to give me permission for that, and I'll, I'll I'll always be really grateful to him for that. Was he like one of your first mentors? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And I've had a few. I've had a few. Terry Holtzheimer, who's the director of economic development, he's since passed away, and that was a really really hard loss. But Terry Holtzheimer, Jonathan Aberman. Walt Mossberg, many wonderful mentors, Judy Versus, I, I, just the list goes yeah. on. I've been very blessed. I will say I've been blessed. After my first few mentors, I started looking for them and really being very specific about mentorship is helpful and who who was out there in the world emulating something that I was very respectful of, believed in, thought I had something to learn from that. So yeah. Sheila Jordan with Honeywell is a, a mentor of mine. Yeah, find someone who has what you want and do what they do. Absolutely. Yeah, and have you found it, was it difficult at all reaching out to these people and trying to get to know them? It sounds like mentorship, oftentimes we hear the word mentorship and we think it's something formal, but usually it's not. Yeah. At first it was, I stumbled upon it. I didn't really even know that that's what it was. I just knew that some people were taking almost a proactive interest in me and seeing something in me that maybe I didn't see in myself. I've, I have a, a certain level of confidence I, I, that, that hasn't been lacking, but there are always times in your life that you're not sure where you want to go or what you want to do. And sometimes you don't even know that. Sometimes you're doing something and someone else starts to see in you, like, hey, have you thought about this? Or you have these skills and talents and you're using half of them now, but you could really lean into them by doing X, Y, and Z. Have you thought of that? So I, I call it maybe the accidental mentorship. Mm-hmm. Now I'm very specific about finding mentors that I'd say in the last five years or so of my career, very specific about finding mentors, proactively asking them to be my mentor, sharing with them that I'd like to learn from them for different reasons and being very specific. I think with mentors, it's really important to be very specific about what it is, why you're reaching out to them, what it is that you'd like to learn from them, how they can be helpful to you, and then being committed to that relationship. Don't just ask and then pull back and not not carry forward with it. I see that a lot. I also enjoy mentoring 
I often find, and I don't know if it's lack of confidence or someone just doesn't know how to work with a mentor, but I often find I'm asked to be a mentor and then I don't hear from them again. Right. I really believe that it's, it's they got caught up in whatever it is that they weren't sure about what they were doing or they were somehow struck by maybe she doesn't really have time for me, those sorts of things, without actually saying. So I try to be very specific with the mentors that I find today. Yeah, let's talk about that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. There has to be a lot of vulnerability in that change process. Mm -hmm. What did it feel like when you say that these people have seen something in you that maybe you didn't see in yourself? Did you receive that well the first time they say, hey, you should try this or let's go to this conference. Did you ever have a thought of maybe I'm not the right person for this or am I qualified for this or who do I think I am trying to be this person? Did that ever show up? Absolutely. I only hesitated just to take a deep breath. Absolutely. And it's known as imposter syndrome. (laughs) And the more, the the older I get and the more people that I meet in the world, both personally and professionally, imposter syndrome is everywhere. Almost everyone, even the most confident people who you'd never, they, once you get to know them and they become a little more open and, and authentic with you. They'll, you, they'll start to talk about imposter syndrome. Do you think that's just part of success? That's just part of the journey that we all, that's a human trait that we all feel until we learn that we can do it. We all feel like maybe we can't, even though we have confidence in other parts of our lives. That's a deep question. Sometimes I lean towards maybe yes. And then sometimes I lean towards maybe no. What do you think? I think it is. I think that's part of change. We don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And so... As we continue to do, I relate it to my own, my, my body, for example, mm-hmm. lifting weights or mm-hmm. working out. We don't know how far we can run until we try to run a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how strong we actually are until we try to lift something a little bit heavier. And I think there is a relationship between psychology and physiology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The older I get, the further in my career I get, the more I seem to think that that's true, that growth never feels awesome. In my mind, one hundred percent agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's I, I fully agree with you. In my mind, it's going to look a certain way and it's going <laughs> to feel a certain way, and it never does. I've only grown by doing something that has scared me. In fact, I don't know how you feel about this, but it's been told to me that fear and excitement feel the same way in the body. Yeah. And so sometimes when I'm in fear of what comes next, I'm actually excited about what comes next. Mm -hmm. I've just never felt that physiological feeling in any other circumstance except for when something scary was happening. Yeah. I've heard that before. I agree with it. I I often use that many times, especially public speaking. I know it's the number one fear of ever. And I speak a lot and you would think that I don't get nervous, but I do. And I I feel like actually the, the more public speaking I do, the more nervous I get ahead of time. And so I've... I've found out over the last few years some things that I need to do to help relax me before I speak that have been very helpful. Things like I can pick up the energy in the room. It's almost like I see dead people, right? I see everyone's energy, which is helpful in many cases. And when you're in, when you're speaking in front of five or 500 people, it is not helpful. So right. what I usually do is I walk the room, I chat with people because I'm a people person. I like to start to pick up some of the good energy and then I go and I take some time. I take some time alone and I learn that actually from a, from a professional speaker who does just that. And the minute she told me that, I thought, that's a fantastic practice. I'm going to try that. And it helps a great deal. So, uh, yeah, I think I I went off track just a little bit. But, yes, I I agree. Fear and uh, excitement are the same physiological feelings in your body. Absolutely. It's what your brain tells you. It's what you tell your brain how to react to that. 
Right. Yeah. So when we're learning something new or we're being volunteered for something mm-hmm. new, we've, we have a vocabulary for it now. We it's do. We've coined it <laughs> exactly. to be imposter syndrome. We're talking about it right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The word imposter seems really bad mm-hmm. and, and feels really, I don't know, for me, it feels like, oh, imposter. I don't want to be a poser. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I think it's, it's just don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And we'll never know what we can do until we try to do it. I, I agree. And I always, I, I'm not, again, I've, my career has, I've I've driven my career through this kind of mindset of don't put blinders on, say yes to things, even when you're a little afraid of them or they're new or everyone has been through those growth moments. And if you can remember what that felt like and then what you felt like on the other side of it, as you were saying, you just have to keep reminding yourself of that when you say yes to something that you know is going to be a growth moment for you. You just have to say yes to it and know that it's either two weeks or six months or a year, It's some depending upon what you're saying yes to, that you will get on the other side of it and you're going to feel so good and it will have grown your experiences and personally and professionally. And and I'm a big fan of, of saying yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you build a muscle memory. You right. do. You know, you can get through it. You know that it, it will be a positive that you've grown and you've you've come out on the other side of that growth moment, a richer person per- personally and many times professionally. Is that idea something that one of your parents gave you or did you get that along the way from a mentor? I'm trying to think. I grew up competitively swimming. Yeah. And I... I loved it. No one pressured me to do it. I got in the water. Well, I was in the water before five, but at five, I was part of a swim team and I just loved it. I just took to the water and there's something about knowing that something is hard and that you get through it. I had that with swimming for so many years, that physical exhaustion, that pushing yourself to the point that you don't think you can, you know, decrease your time again. And then you do, you work hard for it, you get through it and you, you achieve. And so I I do think that was rooted in me at a very young age that kind of, if you work hard for something, you can achieve it and you can move forward and that the working hard for it is sometimes unpleasant and it doesn't feel great in the moment but when you push through it you get to some some whatever greatness is for you however you define greatness so I think there's that my parents were I feel really blessed my parents were very supportive of my sisters and I they were real with us right what does that mean <laughs> uh, well I, I think and I, I'm trying to I try to be real with my children too I think they're pretty wonderful and I also know that the world is a big place and that when you leave the house not everyone thinks you're the most amazing person. You mm. need to show them, prove them, do all these things. And so that's what I mean by my parents were incredibly supportive, but they were also very real with us about working hard and not taking anything for granted. And that when we got out, on, out into the world in college and after college, we we were paving our own paving our own way and that the world can be a very beautiful place and it can be a very hard place and to be prepared for for that was there a moment in your childhood that sticks out to you like between the ages of 8 and 12 what was mm. the most impactful time that's middle school so middle school i was I was doing a lot of swimming. It was a period in my life that I was really interested in science. I had an incredible Mrs. Rowe. I'll never forget her. <laughs> my seventh grade science teacher was incredible. And I, I just loved her. And my dad was a scientist engineer. And I I 
took part in the, the middle school science fair and I won the science fair with the environmental impacts on paramecium chordatum. And though that was middle school for me, along with my friends and along with all the, the things that middle school comes with. So I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of middle school. I'd never want to relive middle school. But when you talk about kind of that eight years old to 12 years old, and I, I think of middle school, I think of some really hard work with swimming. I think of being always being around science. And, and that's something that was really important in my family but never really feeling like I had a hold on it or that I had a piece of it. And then kind of doing this experiment and my dad taking some time with me over the course of many weekends to, 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 to do this project with me and spending time with me. I don't know. That was, that was really impactful. It, it stuck with me for a long time. I lost my dad very suddenly in my early twenties. And that's another big moment where, where I remember he, he had a heart attack. It was very sudden. I was driving him to the hospital and he died as I pulled up to the emergency room driving. And when we left, he had no pre, you would never have thought that he would have had a heart attack. He was healthy. He was active. He didn't smoke. We know so much more about cardiac events 25 years later than we did when I was in my early twenties. And so it was sudden. And I remember leaving the hospital. We were out of town. It was for Thanksgiving. We were visiting family in Princeton, New Jersey. And I left the hospital that day and it was, I'll never forget it. It was kind of gray. And I was looking at this guy and I was, and I thought to myself, life can be very beautiful and it can be extremely devastating in the blink of an eye. And that's a really deep moment for me. And I think that it has absolutely made me who I am as an adult, right? I needed to go back to graduate school. I was in the middle of graduate school. I needed to go back to graduate school and finish that out. And I've always since then lived with that moment of we're here one time. We're on this earth one time. It can be taken away from us very, very quickly. And do what you want to do. Do what makes you feel good. Do Lean into your skills and talents. Now, it, it didn't happen automatically. I had to really figure out what my skills and talents were even further. But that moment of losing my dad and losing someone who who kind of thought the world of me that I could always depend on, I think it's just, it made me more independent. Would you say that event of losing your father has made you a more empathetic leader? I think it's made me a much, on, on many days, a much better, deeper parent. I think it's made me a better leader. I have much more empathy for people on my team and in my company and clients. Again, because I think when you, you've experienced something somewhat traumatic in your life, you learn from it, you move forward with it, and it, it deepens you. It, it can't not deepen you. And if it doesn't deepen you, you've missed an incredible opportunity. When you go through something challenging, you've missed an incredible opportunity to grow as a human being. If you come out of that on the other side and it hasn't changed you. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that solidified taking advantage of opportunities for you. Absolutely. It's all about, in some ways it's about timing. Yeah. And you learn that at a young age and you've been able to apply it. Um, along the way. I believe so. I, I Again, I, I often say life can be beautiful and it can be devastating. So take advantage of the beauty when you see it and when you have it. Would you say getting there at the time you did now was maybe that one last lesson your dad was able to help you with? I do know that it happened. It's something I can't change. It's something I wasn't responsible for. I, I never felt responsible for not getting there in time, which is interesting because I, I think we all tend to want to blame ourselves for a lot of things. It happened. And I feel grateful for coming out on the other side of it. When someone that I know now loses someone very close to them, the first thing I say is be very kind to yourself. 
just be very kind to yourself. And even six months after someone's lost someone and they'll say, I don't know why I'm still crying every day. I said, oh my gosh, because st- it's only been six months. That's such a short amount of time. But I went through the same thing after losing my dad. I thought, oh, well, okay, six months later, I should be able to, to go to China for the next year. Why wouldn't I be able to do that? Well, for me, again, everyone's different. For me, I needed to be near my family. I needed to be near people who loved me and I loved them. With that said, I also needed some time alone in a way. I process. I'm a, I, I'm a people person. I'm also highly introverted. That's how I recover from things. I love to be with people. I love to meet with clients and be at events. And I love all of that energy and everything that I learn. In order for me to recover, I need to hike a mountain with just myself or a few people, be very quiet. I need to go canoeing. I, we have anyone that's ever worked with me knows that when I go on vacation, I always try to find kind of the highest elevation and the smallest population. <laughs> so we're very quiet and off the grid. And losing my father in at a youngish age, I just lost my mom less than a year ago to pancreatic cancer. Her That was a different saying goodbye, right? I had 18 months to be with her to share with her how much I loved her. I am someone who learned very early in in my life to let people know how grateful you are that they're in your lives. To, if you love them, tell them you love them. Anyone who's gone through a long illness like that and say goodbye to someone, you also, you have that time with them. You also have the illness that you have to watch them go through and the suffering that you have to watch them go through, which is a different kind of heartbreak. Has that changed anything about your diet or the way that you live your life now having that experience? Yeah, absolutely. That losing my dad, I learned the lesson that life is short. Losing my mom, I learned the lesson. I was reminded of the lesson that life is short and you really do need to take care of yourself physically and emotionally, mentally. It is pouring. Oh my goodness. And since losing my mom, I've always enjoyed working out. I was, you know, an athlete growing up and have had different times in my life where I've worked out much more than others. I've rediscovered yoga. And since my mom passed away, I practice yoga four to five times a week. And it is, it is physically healing and it is spiritually healing in terms of yeah. being able to center and kind of calm the, the nervous system in the body as well as build strength and lean into the compassion for yourself. Yeah. You know? Is that a big part of your daily life of how you kind of prepare yourself to go out there? Do you have specific morning routine or evening routine? Yeah. Uh, yoga is a big part of my morning mm-hmm. routine. Do you wake up at the same time every day? I do. I naturally wake up about 6.30 and I get out of bed around 7 a.m. From 6.30 to 7, I think through my day, I tell the world how grateful I am for different people in my life, for my children. How for, do you do that? Do you write I, it down or do you? I just say it I lay in bed comfortably and look out my window at the trees and literally think and yoga has been a big part of that is just to be very compassionate with yourself thank you for the health thank you for my children thank you for the life I lead thank you for the people that are in my life and I just I kind of it's it's what hits me that day but those are the ones that hit me every single day and then I, I provide some some gratitude and think through some other pieces of the, my life that I'm grateful for. What do you think gratitude does to you or practicing that gratitude? How do you think that helps you throughout your day? Why do you do it? Oh, I think it's so important to acknowledge those things that you're grateful for in life because again, life can be really hard and you can get caught up. And I've had different times in my life where I've gotten caught up in 
what the challenge is or maybe not thinking I was good enough to, to tackle a, a particular role or getting frustrated with, with other people. I mean, I think it's natural, I believe, until you have compassion for yourself that, oh yeah, these things are, are natural. These frustrations are natural. And then the gratitude piece just helps me try to stay more in the moment. Do you you do this with your kids? Because you're, you're also a mother. Has that changed anything about your routines or solidified doing certain things so that they see you doing it? Oh, absolutely. I let them see me fail all the time. Yeah. I think it's so important and to not be stressed out by it or to try to excuse it away or anything because it is so important because I didn't allow myself to fail for so many years. I saw it as such a negative and I've learned in particular of the last five to six years that failure is so necessary and part of the journey. And if you're not failing at some point, you're not growing, you're not, you're not moving forward. And so being a mom, absolutely. I let them see me fail. I very much let them see me have those moments where I get nervous before I, I have public speaking events. I will, even if it's not in front of them, I will say that morning, I am really, my stomach is flip-flopping like crazy. I know I'm going to do well. I'll, I'll say right to them. I know I'm going to do well and I'm, I just need to take some deep breaths and I don't know why I get so nervous. I love to be on stage. I love to share the knowledge. I don't know why I get so nervous and I'm going to do well, but man, my stomach is flip-flopping because they're now in middle school and high school and they're doing presentations they do this all the time and they're really hard this generation they are so hard on themselves and so I like I like them to know that mom and dad have challenges yeah or um, that what impact do you think that's actually having on them oh, at that age too uh, hopefully in the moment it's teaching them something but oh my gosh I have to think that in 2, 3, 10, 15, 20 years they'll think back and remember their mom having difficulty where they thought their mom was so I played tennis growing up it wasn't it was just it was a summer sport I hung out at the pool a lot because I was swimming a lot and I played tennis I didn't take it any further than that but I was on the tennis team for many many years in the summer so I can play some tennis I'm not awesome at tennis but I can play some tennis my son started playing tennis when he was seven years old by around age 11 he got to be really good and we went to play tennis one day and he was so frustrated with me and I, I turned to him I said hey Will you have surpassed me my friend I am not a Wimbledon I know that when you were seven and eight you idolized everything about me playing tennis but I am not that good and you are so much better than me and by the way you're better than me because you practice all the time all of that hard work and energy that you put into tennis and that love that you put into tennis but that moment of just being very real with I want my kids to see that I'm not perfect they should not strive to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I try. I try to do good in the world. I try to play tennis with Will. And I'm not, a, I'm not, he's a much better tennis player than I am. That goes back to our, the earlier part of our conversation that we learn from making mistakes. Yeah. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to not know. It's okay yeah. to not feel good enough, but just do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, because we come out stronger on yeah. the other end. And that's something, again, I'll just say, that's not something that I was born with or that at 18 or 25, I, that, that was a journey. I like to, in, in those that I mentor and, and with my children and with their friends, I like to, I, I hope that I can teach them to shortcut that and not have to wait 20 years to, to, to realize that. Um, but that life is a journey. You, you learn, you can make mistakes. It's okay. There, my dad, this is something that I, I lived by today. My dad taught us from a very early age. There are big mistakes and little mistakes. Getting a D in English, a little mistake. You don't want to do that. You want to understand why is they getting a D in English. By the way, I never got a D in English, but I'm using that as an example. A big mistake is drunk driving, right? And hitting, that's, 
that's a life altering big mistake. And so if you can kind of take in your life and, you know, oh, these are little mistakes or these are little learnings that I've had or these are little failures that I've had and learn from them and move forward, you're golden. But big yeah. mistakes and little mistakes, that's something my dad used to Is that where you the got the narrative of sometimes it's a headache for Advil and sometimes it's a bigger headache? Oh, I didn't get it from my dad. I actually, that was through Walt Mossberg. I heard him uh, speak with some some fast-growing founders years ago, known as the founders of YouTube, at one of these conferences. And he, someone on stage and someone in the conversation, and it was the first time I had heard that kind of, here's a pain point. Because I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing. I love to solve for pain points. I love to understand what is your pain point? Because you may be talking about a stress headache that really does need Excedrin. It needs aspirin and caffeine, right? But someone may be trying to solve that with a different kind of painkiller, right? A different kind of treatment that, yes, in its own right, is excellent, but not for this particular challenge. And so that's what I love about working with technology companies and working with technology founders and building digital products and being in the middle of very exciting cutting edge technology. I love to ask those questions. What is the business outcome you're trying to achieve? And and get them to really, many times it's very difficult to identify what the pain point is. You might, someone might have an idea and they may be talking about this, we've got to solve for this. And when you get into it, it's not that at all. That might be step two or three that you need to solve, but you've got to get to the core. So yeah, the, I, I, and I, I, all the teams I've ever worked with in the last 15 years always hear me talk about the pain. Is yeah. it an Advil or is it a Tylenol? What are, how are we trying to solve this? Or is it something completely different? But either way, let's either solve it ourselves for this this person or this company or whoever, or let's get them to the, I'm, I'm a big believer in making sure that you bring in the right people to help with that pain. That has to do with the gratefulness, the openness in the world. I believe there's space in every, there's, there's enough, and I say this all over LinkedIn all the time when I'm, when I'm commenting or celebrating someone, there is enough space for everyone in the world to shine. Yeah. And the sooner we all understand that and live lives to make that actually happen, oh my gosh, the, the better the world would be. Was there, was there a moment where that you can look back where you were just in a lot of fear or, and it could be personally or professionally, but what's a moment that you look back on that you were terrified and fearful at the time, but now you can say that you're truly grateful for that experience, that it's made you who you are as an individual, probably in your professional life also. So, Oh my gosh, there are so many. <laughs> yeah. Do you have multiple? Yeah, sure. I think everyone has those moments, especially if you're saying yes to a lot of things, right? I think anytime I start a new challenge, I have a healthy amount of, I don't know that fear is the right word. I have a healthy amount of, Jennifer, what are you doing? How, okay, do you have a plan for this? How are you going to, what, what's your, what are your next 90 days? So, yeah, I, I mean, I've had a number of those. I've had my first job, finding my first job. I graduated in a recession. I get what it's like to graduate in a recession. And I hustled. I went to a geospatial engineering conference four hours from the D.C. area that did not have a job fair, that had nothing to do with me getting a job. Right out of school, I had my, my dinky little resume, and I went to the trade show floor, and I started... I started interviewing companies and I got to two companies that I was like, I love what they're doing. Here's my resume. Are you hiring? I mean, I had some hustle even, even back then. And I, so I, I get what it's like to try and find a first job. And my first job was, 
the computer, <laughs> I'm to date myself, the computer systems we were using were so expensive that they ran them 24 hours a day. So I took the night shift and I went and worked from 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. for a year and a half. And that was my first job. Yeah. And it opened up amazing opportunities. But when you ask about fear, I mean, there have been so many times that I've been fearful and that I've, I, I tend to do it anyway. I, that, that's the thing. I, I don't let fear yeah. hold me back. Or... Or the, or the sense of fear, or, the fe- or that feeling that you have. I, I, I tend to say yes and lean into it. So I just asked about fear, but were you ever at a jumping off point, a point where you couldn't keep doing what you were doing, but you were uncertain about what to do next? Maybe it was a painful experience, maybe it wasn't, but just in a moment where you have to jump off, you can't keep doing what you're doing. <sighs> Absolutely. I think anytime I've made a, a shift in my career, it's it's when I know that I've 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 contributed beautifully to the team, to the effort, to my learning, to everything that I had to give. And it's time for me to now go flex a little bit of a different muscle or try something new. I I don't know that any of those ideas ever come in a day. I think sometimes it does take, you know, a little while and again I talking with people, getting some ideas, and then not holding back, going ahead and taking a step forward. And even if you're, if it's a new experience and you're, I mean, so many times, I mean, when I, when I moved from the, the engineering job, I did something that everyone found acceptable. Now I didn't do it because of that. I just, I went to grad school, right? And that's acceptable, but it was a change for me, right? I needed to leave some, a company that I was doing well in that was probably going to be acquired. But I also knew that I had learned everything at that moment and that I needed for what I needed to learn, not, not in life, but just for what I needed to know at that moment. And that I had some real desires to go back to school and, and learn some new ways of thinking about things. I think when I took the role with and kind of created and, and assumed the role of director of business development and innovation strategy for Arlington County, that was brand new. No one had ever done that before. So I needed to, I'm, I'm kind of good at creating opportunities out of nothing. That's it's, it's very entrepreneurial and it's what I love to do. I was with Arlington for many years and did incredible work and was able to learn from startup founders and Fortune 500 CEOs. And I mean, it was an incredible, incredible journey. And we, I was also making a real difference in the county. We were bringing in and making sure that the innovation economy was taking place in Arlington and that these technology companies were clustering and private equity and VC firms were were, know, were learning about our companies. And I took such great pride in the companies that we helped and that I, I was was helping after hours. I was just doing a lot of advising and, and just consulting in, an, in a way that I loved to do. And uh, it was time to go back to the private sector. And a lot of people thought I was crazy to do that, to leave something that I was, I was very successful doing. And a lot of people had a lot of respect and a lot of credibility, not only here in the D.C. area, but nationally. And it was just time for me to go back to the private sector. I, I love high growth companies and I have a real talent for helping them continue to grow at come in at inflection points and help them grow whether it's from 5 million to 15 or 25 to 50 or 50 to 100 million 100 million to 250 million I, I love I love helping companies do that so I think to answer your question yes there have been times that I've had these jumping off points and I you I just move forward with them I, I don't I don't hesitate 
Yeah. Well, it goes back to what you've been saying. Don't put blinders on. Don't put blinders on. And I will say again, have some really good people around you that you can share these ideas with and say, what do you think? What do you, what, what do you think this role will be like? Or do you, do you think I'll really be able to flex the things that I'm good at as well as learn new things and yeah, put good, have good people around you. What are you working on now for the next stage? What's next? Goodness, I think I have I have an in, I have an interesting career. I have both the technical side as well as marketing, sales, business growth, leadership piece, and it's time to. And I've been on uh, I've been part of advisory boards. I was on a board a number of years ago, and it's time to start looking at, at board opportunities again. And it's a it's a fantastic time to do so because again I've got that experience, and and it will be very um, rewarding to me to help another to help other companies as a board member, make some decisions, help them with governance, help them with strategy. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with us this afternoon. Thank you. I'm so honored. I'm so honored you thought to, to ask me and invite me to join you. It's been wonderful to, to be with you and have time with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.